0: I have a confession to make. I hate making confessions on the mic, but I'm here to be honest, so here we go. Until a few weeks ago, I had never even picked up a graphic novel. I feel icky about this because I think there might have been a bit of judgment and some snobbery in the sauce. But that has all changed now because I finally read my first graphic novel for week four of New Reads November, and I totally understand why people love them so much. Today, my guests and I chat about Anne of West Philly, an Anne of Green Gables retelling that hit shelves in March of this year. It was written by Ivy Noel Weir and illustrated by Myesha Haynes. And together, they bring Anne Shirley's story into fresh, modern Technicolor. In Anne of West Philly, our girl Anne comes to Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert as a foster child who talks openly about some of the practical challenges she's faced in her previous homes. She discovers a passion and talent for coding, spars with Marilla's best friend, and of course, navigates new relationships with Diana and Gilbert. Fans of the classic Anne of Green Gables will find plenty to love in this reboot but the author and illustrator also offer us some refreshing diversity, representation, and real talk. Together, these elements inspire quite a bit of real talk on episode 220 of SSR, in which we discuss teen girl tropes, negative stereotypes of kids in foster care, what makes a good apology, girls in STEM, and the importance of children being seen. We also talk about our previous experiences with the Anne of Green Gables source material and about the graphic novel genre more broadly. My guest today is Erin Entrada Kelly. Erin received the 2018 Newbery Medal for Hello Universe, a 2021 Newbery Honor for We Dream of Space, and the 2017 APALA Award for The Land of Forgotten Girls, among other honors. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what I just said, you should just know that all of these awards make Erin a very, very big deal in the world of Kid Lit. She is also a New York Times bestseller, and her work has been translated into many languages. Erin has a bachelor's degree in women's studies and liberal arts from McNeese State University and an MFA from Rosemont College. She teaches in the MFAC program at Hamline University and lives in Delaware. You'll hear more about Erin's latest projects at the end of this episode, but you can also keep up with her work on Instagram and Twitter at Erin Entrada. Thank you so much, Erin, for joining me today. Get to know more about the SSR community on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you enjoy what you hear today, please share a screenshot of the episode to your social platform of choice and tag me so I can see. This, along with leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, is the best way to spread the word about the pod. Now that you have the word about the pod, you can support my work and get to know your SSR-loving peers by becoming a patron. Members of our Patreon community contribute a few dollars each month to the show in exchange for rewards like access to the SSR Discord channel, weekly exclusive guest Q&As, membership in the SWR Book Club, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, and more. I love getting to know this cozy community, and I am so grateful to them for helping the pod grow. In November, the SWR Book Club in Patreon is reading The Most Likely Club, and it's not too late to get involved. We are wrapping up 2022 with a big virtual Patreon party next month, and it would be great to see you there. If you'd like to learn more about joining the Patreon family, visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR Podcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a fantastic place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Happy listening! Now let's go to the show. freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Erin. Welcome to SSR. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Today is a big day because this is the first time I have ever read a graphic novel, Wow, really? This is a big day. I know. And I am a little embarrassed about it, especially because there has been so much talk about graphic novels recently. With Heartstopper, there's just like so much great graphic novel content out there. But because of the reading load that I typically have with the podcast and then with just trying to keep up, trying fruitlessly to keep up with my own TBR, I don't find my way to graphic novels that often. And so finally, I am here. We read Anne of West Philly. I want to hear a little bit about your graphic novel experience. It sounds like I'm the only newbie involved in this conversation right now. You
1: might be the only newbie, but that's okay because we welcome newbies at any time. So I've not written a graphic novel, but I've read a lot of them. And I think that it's really exciting what's happening with graphic novels now, especially for young readers, because those readers who might shy away from traditional novels have a go to. So I've not written one yet but I have read plenty of them. I've read a lot of, obviously, middle grade and YA is kind of where graphic novels are really taking off, but I also enjoy reading comics that are intended for adults that come in graphic novel form. So I feel like I have a good handle on what makes a good graphic novel. Do you care to share? What do you think
0: makes a good one?
1: I think what makes a good graphic novel is similar to what makes a good traditional novel, right? Like pacing, story, character. Of course, character is the the cornerstone of any good story. And also the panels, the illustrations have to make sense with what's happening, obviously in the dialogue or in the scene. I feel like as an as an author, one of the things that I I would struggle with if, if I was writing a graphic novel is the fact that you can't have a lot of interiority, right? Because Everything needs to be happening on the page. So I like to look at ways authors do that and how they kind of address that in their scripts. And obviously, dynamic art that makes sense for the story.
0: Yes. And I, even as a newbie, think that this book, Anne of West Philly, ticks all of those boxes. I agree if I may be so bold, even as a rookie to this genre. So of course, Anne of West Philly, as you might guess, listeners, from the title, is a modern retelling of Anne of Green Gables. And before we dive in any further, Erin, I'd also like to hear a little bit more about any background you have with the original Anne of Green Gables book or the
1: whole series. Okay, so I might get in trouble for this, but I've never actually read the original Anne of Green Gables. No trouble. (laughs) And... So many people I know love Anne and Anne of Green Gables. I did watch, I think, some TV adaptation at some point in my childhood. I remember really loving it, but I don't remember much about it. I just remember that I enjoyed it. But I have gleaned over the years as a children's author and as a, a teacher of literature, I have gleaned over the years what the gist is. So I don't really have a strong relationship with Anne. Og, Anne. What about you?
0: So I had never read it before I started the podcast either. So we, we, well, I was in the same boat as you are now a couple of years ago. And then I was like, if I'm going to do this podcast, we have to talk about Anne of Green Gables because it is such a touchstone for so many people when they reflect on the books that they read and loved when they were younger. I will link to that episode in the show notes, listeners. It's been a really long time. I want to say it was within the first year of the show. So it's been about four years now. And I think I had some controversial takes on it in that I found Anne a little annoying. (laughs) And I, I do think like, especially reflecting on that reading experience compared to the way it's retold in Anne of West Philly, I do think a lot of it has to do probably just with the language and the time period in which the original book was written because we're not used to hearing teenagers and teenagers speak that way. And so there was something like a little bit grating to me about her cadence and I hate to say that as like a proponent of all characters especially female characters like I never want to accuse a character like Anne of being grating or annoying because I just think that that happens all too often out in the world and like I want to champion all of them but I just remember being a little put off by her and not quite understanding why people loved her so much. <laughs>
1: You know what, that's I I appreciate your honesty. And I'm curious, do you think you would have felt differently? If you had encountered the books as a young girl? Do you think a lot of it has to do with the age that that readers are encountering? Anne, I don't know. I
0: wonder about that with a lot of the books that I read for the podcast and I try so hard like when I can to acknowledge in the conversations I have with my guests like this feels like a thing that is more related to the fact that I'm not this book's ideal audience anymore or this feels like a thing that I probably would have liked if I read it at the appropriate time. So I try very hard to keep that in mind. I think that the thing that is so timeless about Anne and we do see it in this graphic novel retelling is her precociousness and what i think we would probably describe in 2022 is like sass and like just the freshness with which she approaches the world and so i think that i would have i would have appreciated that even more when i was a kid and when i read it when i was like 28 or 29 whenever i read it a couple of years ago i was paying more attention to like the language that she used and there was something that was off-putting to me whereas i think when i was a teenager I maybe would have even found that language a little bit romantic and like something about the way that she spoke to the world, like being part of the appeal in itself. So I think it's probably a little bit of
1: both. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to chalk it up to that listeners. If you want to hear my full recap of my first interaction with Anne Shirley, you can check out that episode. I'll link it on Instagram stories this week as well. But today we are talking about a new Anne Shirley, an Anne Shirley for 2022. I offered you a couple of options, Erin, a few different suggestions for books to read on the show. Do you remember why you picked this one?
1: I do. I, I love graphic novels, so I was excited to talk about a graphic novel. And one of the things that appealed to me about this choice is that it's not only a retelling of a classic, but there's a lot of things that... Give it a whole new spin right so it's a different it's a graphic novel so that's a fairly new medium the main character Anne is a girl of color and it's set in West Philly which you know although I haven't read Anne of Green Gables I'm going to assume that Green Gables is quite different from West Philly so all of those things really appeal to me because one of the things I like to do I actually I used to teach a course at Rosemont College for the MFA program, and I would teach a course on children's literature, and I would, I would have the students do a comparative essay comparing a classic book like a Judy Bloom book to a modern book and seeing how they're different and how they're at the same. So that really appealed to me with Anne of West Philly.
0: And that is why you are the perfect guest to have on SSR, and that is why we're going to need you to come back for one of our throwback reads as
1: well, because it sounds like you are well-versed and well-equipped to do so. I would love to, although I haven't read Anne of Green Gables, so maybe that negates some of my legitimacy.
0: I find you would be very legitimate, so don't worry about that at all. Okay. <laughs> Please don't worry about your legitimacy. So, Anne of West Philly, written by Ivy Noel Weir and illustrated by Maisha Haynes, it is the third book in Little Brown Young Reader's graphic novel retellings. It's, it's called the Classic Graphic Remix Series. The first in that series was called Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. Little Women just happens to be my favorite classic, so I will probably have to go get that graphic novel now. And then also The Secret Garden on 8th Street. So this is the third, and I live in Philadelphia, so I was excited that it's set in West Philly. And I have never been to Green Gables. I remember it a little bit from when I read the book, and of course we all have been fed images of it in TV adaptations, and I think there's just this, like, you absorb what Green Gables is supposed to be, different than West Philly. The day that I that we are recording this is um last night, the Phillies won whatever game they needed to win to progress to the World Series. And I can tell you for sure that that is not what Great Green Gables looked like if you compare to the streets of Philadelphia last night. Although I can't say that that's what we see in Anna West Philly either. So just for a little context, everybody, they literally had to grease the light poles in Philadelphia last night so that people did not climb them. So that's what we're dealing with. Yes.
1: That does not surprise me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I was not part of it. I have a dog who is very afraid of fireworks. And so I was mostly just at home trying to make sure that he did not lose his mind. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's where I come to this as a Philadelphia resident and- Let's talk about Anne and our first impressions of her. This is the first time we've read a graphic novel on the podcast, so I, we're going to be talking about this book in a new way. I, I'm going to like approach it probably in a different way, and we'll kind of just see how it goes. But we're introduced to Anne, of course, on the first page of this graphic novel. And listeners, you will have to uh, forgive any page turning because I sort of can't help myself but really like page through the book as we talk about it. And I guess we actually don't meet Anne on the first page. We meet the the city of Philadelphia on the first page. And then we meet Marilla. Marilla is Anne's soon-to-be adoptive mother. But in in the short term, she is fostering Anne. And immediately, I had to highlight a couple of things that Marilla says as as her brother is preparing to go pick up Anne, who is their new foster placement. She says, we love fostering. We love being able to give these kids a home for however long they need it. I am happy to be that for a girl. And then her neighbor says, but they've all been boys, elementary school age. You said this girl is in eighth grade? Hormones, boy craziness, crying. It's going to be a nightmare. I wouldn't go back to eighth grade if you paid me. And Marilla says, hush, are you trying to make me nervous? I'm sure it will be fine. We have to talk about this trope and the stereotype that we see assigned to middle schoolers, particularly middle schoolers who are girls. It's something that I heard as a middle school girl myself, like girls are so mean, girls are so challenging. And I'm sure as somebody who writes for young readers and is often thinking about how young readers are interpreting text, you must have thoughts about this, Erin.
1: Yes. In fact, when I got to that part, you know, of course I kind of did an eye roll, which I'm sure is intended for the reader to do. But what I thought was interesting too is, Not just that stereotype, but the kind of the layers of stereotypes in here. Because first, there's the stereotype that Anne is going to have the hormones and boy crazy and crying all the time and overly dramatic. Of course, there's a slight irony there because Anne is in many ways overly dramatic, but she's not, you know, full of hormones and boy crazy. And then there's also the stereotype of, what, it, what a foster kid looks like or, or how a foster kid behaves, which is another stereotype that's dealt with throughout the book, right? And you're kind of expecting, you're painting this picture in your mind of what Anne is going to be like, right? Um, I mean, of course we have an idea because we know it's an Anne and Green Gables adaptation, but the intent being that she's either going to be, have hormones and be boy crazy, crying all the time, or, she's going to be broken and damaged and and a troublemaker because she's from a foster home. So I thought that was really interesting, just the different layers of stereotypes that the story plays with.
0: I agree, and I like that we get this peek into the adult world that's happening here. I don't really remember that being part of the equation in the original Anne of Green Gables, like we just know that the Cuthberts are taking Anne in, and we don't really know how they feel about it very much, except that like there's this weird interplay where Matthew is open to having a girl and Marilla is a little bit nervous. But I think this retelling puts a finer point on foster care as an institution, which is, of course, a very complicated institution that would take hours and hours and hours to discuss and research that I have not done, to be fair. But I think that it's an important conversation to have and a conversation that I'm grateful to see that young readers are being let in on because it will hopefully facilitate a discussion about how to be more empathetic to students that might be coming in and out of their schools in and out of their other environments who they might learn are foster children and like how to be more open to them, how to just like be cool about it, how to be supportive of those students um that's not a conversation that was really open to me when i was a kid
1: agreed and i think on on the flip side to your original question as well is i guess my attitude also is okay, if she is crying, if she is quote unquote overly dramatic, if she is hormonal, etc. obviously that is a, a stereotype and a trope that we all hear and see. But also what difference does it make? It, right? I mean, throughout the book she does actually cry many times and she is overly dramatic and she has a big imagination. but, but why is that considered a negative thing? I guess is the question. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things that, that readers could unpack if they chose to kind of really th- sit there and think about what we're being told and how, how the story plays into or against stereotypes. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Something else I was thinking about quite a bit at the beginning of the book as we meet the Cuthberts and we see Matthew getting in the car to go pick up Anne is the fact that I have learned a bit about foster care on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, because for all of the madness that these platforms have introduced to our lives, there are also some things that are informative and I think have expanded my own worldview and have made me hopefully a more empathetic person. And I've been really interested in learning about fostering. And there's a lot of great foster parents and sort of foster care experts who talk about the foster care system and where it's broken and how it can be made better. And so I was thinking about that a lot as I read this book. Um, And I hope that foster parents know about the book and are sharing it with their foster children because hopefully it it can help them feel a little bit more seen as well. Absolutely. Definitely. So Matthew picks up Anne and she immediately feels so 2022. She's making Marie Kondo references, only stuff that sparks joy, right? That's what they say, to talk about her luggage. And I just thought that was great. I was like, oh, right, we are fully in 2022. We are not even pretending to be in 2021. Like here we are, she is a modern Anne. She is Anne for the new generation. And then Matthew pretty early on acknowledges that he and Marilla are sisters. And I do think this is worth talking about because In the discourse about the original Anne of Green Gables, I feel like people had a lot to say about the arrangement where like Matthew and Marilla still live together and they sort of seem as though they're a married couple, but then you find out that they're Cuthberts as in like brother and sister Cuthbert. And I thought it was really cool that Anne says, so you and Marilla are siblings And Matthew says, "Mm mm-hmm, yes. And she says, but you've chosen to live together. And he says, neither of us wanted to live alone and we like spending time together. I think more people should choose a living arrangement that makes them feel happy rather than what they think they should do. And this is, of course, a nod to those comments about the original book, but it's also a good reminder that there is no one, quote, normal living arrangement and there are lots of different ways that a family can look.
1: Yes, I I absolutely loved that because- Again, it's, it's pushing against what we assume and what we, we think is normal and what we expect. And I love that because I was actually, because I wasn't familiar with the original, I didn't realize that they were siblings. So when I came to that part, I had assumed that they were married. And she says, so you and Marilla are siblings. And he says, "Mm-hmm," and they've chosen to live together. And my first thought was, oh, that's odd. And then immediately, a couple panels later, my initial reaction of, oh, that's odd. I'm basically called out for it, which I loved, right? Because then I was like, "Oh yeah, wait a minute, yeah, people should do whatever living arrangement they think that that makes them happy." And my original judgment, if you will, was immediately challenged. So I really like, I really appreciated that because I wasn't aware that they were brother and sister because I'm not familiar with the original. So I really loved that part. In fact, this whole scene when when he picks up Anne is probably my favorite part of the entire book is is the very beginning because she just she just burst out like a ray of sunshine and she has a million questions and comments and commentary and she talks nonstop and the art shows her imagination and her wide eyedness and her joy and just her liveliness, her energy is really depicted in the art as well. So I loved that whole sequence. They have such a sweet relationship, Matthew and Anne, and it starts
0: to develop really early on, which I liked. I think in the original book just because Matthew is like an older guy. And again, it was written many years ago. And so the way that he speaks to her is it's more formal. And so you don't quite get the sense of, or I didn't at least get the sense of warmth that we see on the pages of this book. And so that's why later on when like Anne has feelings about things that are going on with Matthew, it didn't connect for me as much because there was still always this formality between them, at least the way I read it. And so in this book, there's immediate, like they just feel so cozy together and you can tell that they relate to each other. She is really interested in reading and he's a professor. And so they start talking about books and I'm a sucker for that, of course. And so that was really great. But I I, I gotta say, Marilla does not hit it off with Anne quite as quickly as her brother does. And she sort of immediately is questioning if this is a good idea. (laughs) And the scene where Anne tries to eat chocolate for breakfast... Really puts Marilla over the edge.
1: Yes, and I have to say, I, I wasn't a huge fan of Marilla through much of the book, and maybe that's an, intentional, I'm assuming it is, but I found her to be very I don't know if cold is the right word, but i didn't I didn't feel warm and fuzzy toward her the same way I felt toward Matthew, just because she did seem prepared to be exasperated by Anne, and then she immediately was, of course. So I don't know. But then you warm up to her, right, as it goes on.
0: Yeah, she has a really nice arc. I think that in our 2022 perspective, unfortunately, Marilla plays into some of the stereotypes that we've been fed about foster parents, at least at the beginning. By the end, she's gone on a whole journey and she and Anne bond. But when I think about the stories of foster parents that I was exposed to especially when I was a kid it's a lot of like like you said exasperation is a great word or like sort of being ready to think like okay like here we go again let's see what happens with this next kid and I didn't really understand like why she enjoyed being a foster parent at first especially because she really within hours it seems is ready to throw in the towel she actually calls the foster agency after this interaction about chocolate for breakfast and she asks if they're. If their contact there has time for a phone call. So we immediately think that she's ready to say goodbye to Anne.
1: Yes. And you know what? I'm glad you brought that up about stereotypes as well, because it did make me think one trope that we often see is the cold female and then the very warm male figure you know like and you see this as as far back as fairy tales right that the stepmother is cold and the father's loving and caring and i feel like this is kind of a trope that has continued where the male character is celebrated for being warm and loving and tolerant and the woman is is angry and has no patience and and is very domineering, for lack of a better word. And I'm assuming in this case, because they are modeling it after the original, I'm assuming that's how the original plays out, where, where she's, you know, that cold figure, and Matthew's the warm figure, or maybe not as warm as because it sounds like you don't have as much of a recollection of him being as warm as he is in this graphic novel. But He's certainly warmer than Marilla. Yeah. I mean,
0: in the original, Marilla is even colder. And they are as I said, they're older. So you get the sense of the these sort of wizened, grouchy, just they have lived many years and they are tired. Like that's the the sense that you get from both Cuthberts. And so Marilla is even scarier (laughs) in the first like I wouldn't call Marilla scary in this book, but in the original, I was like, I think if I were Anne's age, I would feel like I needed to avoid Marilla in that version of the book in the original. Whereas Matthew is, he's a little grumpy, but he's, he's lovable. And even in his roughness around the edges, like you know that he has a soft spot for Anne. But yeah, it would have been interesting since we are doing a retelling to have that swapped and to let Marilla be a little bit warmer, a little bit fuzzier. And I I think especially because the Cuthberts are also people of color. And so it would have been nice to see Marilla get to be like a warm, loving black woman and not sort of like an angry black woman because I think it's it's way too often that we see that.
1: Yes, I, yeah, that would have been really interesting. And I hadn't thought of that, but, but now that you're saying it, that would have been really interesting to see. And he could kind of be the, Matthew can be the serious, you know, somewhat impatient one and or, Not as warm. Yeah, that would have been an interesting mashup. And like you said, because this is a retelling, you kind of have, I mean, you are limited in some ways to the original, but there are also ways to take different liberties. And that would have been an interesting choice.
0: Have you written retellings, Erin?
1: I have not. Okay, Not yet.
0: I'm curious just like about the process, because I would think it would be very difficult. And especially since this is part of a series, like I wonder how much input the publisher has and like if they're bound to certain aspects of the original staying put. So I'd be curious to, to hear more about that. I didn't find that much in the way of interviews with the author and the illustrator. I found one little tiny interview with the illustrator, I believe in a Publishers Weekly article that I will link in the show notes, but there wasn't much out there. So Ivy Noel Weir, if you happen to be listening, let me know, and we can talk about how all of this came together, because I enjoyed reading it in spite of these kind of little questions that we have. So the real the real first conflict that we have between Anne and Marilla happens when Anne has a run-in with Marilla's friend. And basically Anne gives a little too much attitude to Marilla's friend when she comes over because Marilla's friend um Rachel is saying things like how do you ever get a word in edgewise with a chatterbox like that Marilla? You weren't kidding. She is loud. And Anne basically immediately flies off the handle. And her face in this in this image, you can tell how mad she is. She says, shut up. Who even are you? Like any eighth grader would say. And where do you get off being so rude? I don't even know you. And Marilla sends her to her room. And what's really interesting, I think, about this interaction isn't so much that scene as it is what follows. There's a lot in this book about apologizing and what makes a good apology because there are a few different instances in which Anne is asked or expected to apologize to someone and this is the first one and Marilla says maybe you shouldn't have started off the whole conversation making fun of her. So she is acknowledging to Rachel like you were out of line. You shouldn't have talked about a literal child in this way in front of her. She says that she's going to make Anne apologize but Rachel is not really interested in hearing that. She's like, basically, Anne sucks and you have to figure this out. And Anne takes a hard line. She does not want to apologize. She says, I can't believe someone who doesn't even know me would be so nasty to me. I don't understand how Marilla can be friends with someone like that. And Matthew says, well, you don't have to be friends with Rachel. And I agree with you what she said was not okay. But we don't tell people to shut up in this house, even when we're very upset. And he asks her to apologize. The way Matthew communicates with Anne in moments like this, like my heart grows five sizes for him because he seems to have a really strong handle. Maybe we're meant to believe it's because he's a professor. He has a really strong grasp on how to talk to Anne in a way that both validates her feelings and communicates what is expected of her. So he doesn't let her off the hook for the things that she does wrong, but he also doesn't let Rachel off the hook for being rude to her. So I just, I loved the way that he was able to hold both things and the way the author made that happen on the page.
1: Yes, I appreciated that as well. And of course, I was immediately annoyed by by Rachel. Yeah,
0: <laughs> she's the worst.
1: Yes, she is the worst. And I kind of you know, I hate to say it, but maybe it's because of, I was already positioned to be annoyed by Marilla in different ways. But I was kind of asking the same question. Why are you friends with this woman? Yeah. She's already questioned your choices at the very beginning. And now she was rude to Anne upon meeting her. So, I mean, it wasn't a, a, you know, a big sticking point for me, but it did kind of, it didn't do anything to warm me toward Marilla at that point.
0: Yeah, I would imagine if you are a foster parent, you really need to be surrounded by people who support you and have your back and are asking curious like compassionate questions about the kids that are placed in your home so yeah I, I think that maybe rachel should fall to the wayside in marilla's social circle in the future but when Anne goes to apologize to rachel on the page you see her literally run up to the door and rachel is nodding it says nod nod Anne hugs her and then she and she just runs away And Marilla says, well, that seemed to go well, if a little quickly. You certainly look very sorry. Do you feel better having apologized? And Anne says, I'm mostly just glad that's over. And Marilla says, an apology for being hurtful isn't something you say just to get it over with. It should be something you say because you've really taken the time to reflect on how your actions may have made someone else feel. And I want to clap and I want to applaud Marilla, but at the same time, I want to say that I really relate to Anne because it's really hard to apologize and most of the time it's only good because you feel better when you're done with it. So everybody here is right two things can be true I
1: agree when I when I saw that part I was I was thinking, okay, but can can't Anne be sorry and also want to get it over with yeah it's kind of the both things. I mean I feel like any of us who have had to apologize to someone, Who hurt who also hurt us. I think we can all agree that it's difficult to do. And maybe we are sorry. But also, we want the apology to be done. So everyone can move on with their lives. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah, both of those things can be true and are true.
0: We've talked about some of the conflict that Anne and Marilla have early on, but what we haven't spoken about yet is a conversation they have in the grocery store, which is really important because it gives us an insight into what Anne's life was like before she came to the Cuthberts. And it also begins to soften Marilla to what Anne has been through. And she talks about how in the other homes where she's been placed as a foster child, there have been a lot of other kids who are younger than she is, and she's had a lot of responsibility for them. She even says that there were times when she had to stay home from school to make sure that they were okay because her her foster parents had to go to work. And I found a really interesting review of Anne of West Philly that I wanted to share a couple of quotes from because it speaks to this and about how this can happen with foster kids, unfortunately. This review says, an unfortunate byproduct of being bounced around is that age becomes a construct. With the convenience of childhood being replaced by experiencing the same stresses and ailments of adulthood. Already our Anne has had to play the role of parent to some younger children in a previous placement, sure providing some experience in that regard but also furthering her confusion about roles and responsibilities and what's expected from a kid. There's a small but tender moment early on as Marilla explains to a flustered Anne that she doesn't have to take care of anyone anymore, those days are over, that she can just be a kid. That's a revelation for Anne and something so many of us have taken for granted at one time or another,
1: being allowed and afforded the opportunity to simply act our age. Yes. And you know what? I really loved that whole scene in the grocery store for the reasons that you mentioned. And I just so happened a few weeks ago, read a middle grade novel that centered the the foster care experience. And I have to get the, the title of it because I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it talked a lot about this kind of exactly what you said in the in the the quote this this concept of not being able to be free for lack of a better word in your childhood because you're you're worried about misbehaving being placed somewhere else food on the table and in this case Anne talks to Marilla a lot about how she had to take care of the younger siblings and Marilla recognizes that that may have been a big ask for Anne and one thing about Anne that I found very relatable in this book is how Anne kind of shrugs things off. So you know, Marilla will say something like, "That's a lot for a girl your age to take on," and she's just kind of like, "Oh well, I was happy to do it." And I and I feel like that was an important aspect of Anne's character because I think especially for girls and women, we're kind of ingrained and taught to accept and put put on a happy face, and try to put a positive spin on everything. And that's definitely what Ann does. So I thought that scene in the grocery store was interesting for a lot of different reasons.
0: Yeah, Anna also is exposed to quinoa for the first time, which I thought was like a great little <laughs> detail. Again, very 2022. Although maybe quinoa isn't as trendy as it was in like 2018. But Ann has never heard of it. And Marilla acknowledges like, oh, it's not It's not necessarily rare, but it is hard for some people to access. So Again, we have Marilla starting to, again, understand like, okay, I'm remembering that Anne comes from a different place than I do. And I do have to say, while we're talking about Marilla and some questions that I have for Anne about Marilla, it seems to me like these are things maybe she would have already come to understand from other foster placements that they've had. Like, It almost seems like she's never scratched the surface with any of their previous placements because... I don't know. I would imagine that these things would have come up, but maybe because they had boys, it didn't like maybe the boys that came to live with them in the past didn't share this experience with Anne and didn't feel as though they'd been made to become adults before they were
1: ready. And that was one of the the big questions I had too, um, especially at the beginning as I was reading. And after I finished this, I went and read, you know, the Wikipedia on Anne of Green Gables and kind of brushed up on what I knew. And from what I've gathered in the original, they originally, they wanted a boy because they had a farm, if I'm remembering correctly. And they wanted a boy to work on the farm, but they get a girl by mistake. Yes. So in that scenario, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially in the time period and all that. But I don't know that it made as much sense in this case that, like you said, it seemed like they had never fostered anyone before much less a girl or a boy and this kind of harkens back to what you were saying at the beginning about marilla not wanting a girl in the original scenario it makes sense but i wasn't quite understanding why they preferred a boy over a girl it really felt underexplored to me so i don't know for, for whatever that's worth i was i was thinking well i wonder why th-. until i read the summary of the original then i understood okay well in the original it was the same scenario. But in West Philly, there's there's not a farm to take care of, so I don't know why it matters. But it also feels like, like you said, if she, if Marilla was so shocked by her wanting to eat chocolate for breakfast, like if that's the worst thing that's ever happened in her home, yeah. caring for all these children, it it was a little little perplexing, right? Yeah, because you have to imagine, and again,
0: based on my limited but growing, slowly knowledge of foster care, like you have to imagine every kid that comes into your home shows up with a different set of needs, with a different background, with different trauma, and with different history as to what's expected of them and what is and isn't allowed at home. And so for all Marilla knows, maybe Anne did eat chocolate for breakfast every day at her last placement. So the fact that she was surprised by that, I was like, hmm, Anne, maybe you need to remind Marilla of why she loves to foster because she seems a little hardened to all of this. Agreed. Yes, yes, she did seem hardened. Yeah. So speaking of gender and gender stereotypes that we are trying to break as a society, let's talk about girls in STEM and how girls in STEM and STEM in general, they play a huge role in this book and a huge role in the way Anne is able to integrate into her new life in West Philly. So Anne's first friend that she makes is a girl named Diana, who is a very wealthy girl who lives in the neighborhood. And we find out that Diana and her friends are part of a robotics club. And at first, one of Diana's friends, Josie, is really rude to Anne, which we don't even need to waste a lot of our time on Josie. We have a limited time. And in addition to Rachel being the worst, I would say that Josie is also up there, just very judgmental. She has a lot of assumptions about what it means that Anne is a foster kid. And she, I I would hope, is an example for kid readers in 2022 of how not to behave when you encounter a new kid at school. No matter why they are a new kid at school, we should always just be open to new friends. But Anne realizes both through meeting the girls in the robotics club and then later when she goes to school, that she's pretty good at coding. And it just reminded me like how cool it is that kids now learn to code. I mean, it's my own blind spot because I don't have children. And because I grew up in the 90s when nobody was coding like, oh, right, this is this is something that people are doing and something that people are sharing with young kids. It was really exciting to watch Anne learn about coding and learn about other aspects of STEM throughout the book and to watch her grow that skill set.
1: Yes, I agree. I loved that. And another part that I loved is the teacher gives them an assignment to do a book report. Oh yeah. And Anne decides to do, you know, a short film instead of a book report. That was one of my favorite parts because she 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 works hard on it. It's a lot of creativity, and her teacher doesn't watch it and gives her an F because she was asked to do a report. And that was another moment between her and Matthew where he says, "Well, you did something great and you worked hard on it, and it's wonderful." but it's not what you were asked to do. And her argument is, well, what I did was better than what I was asked to do. So there's a lot of lessons between, you know, separating. Like you said, that two things can be true. Yes, you did something amazing and creative, but also it wasn't the right thing at that moment because it wasn't the assignment. So I loved Anne's creativity with all things technology in this, with the coding. I don't know anything about coding either, but I, I thought it was really interesting. It was just another way that it made it much more modern, right? Mm -hmm.
0: It was really sweet that he also asked to watch it. Like, he talked her through it in the way that you described, Erin, but he also was so excited to watch the movie that she made. And then he's like, do you want to play around with my camera a little bit more this weekend? Like, this is something that we can keep doing. It's just that this was not the time or the place.
1: Yes, he took it and he, I hate to use the buzzword, but he took this teachable moment, right? And he grew it into something really special. Like, he really did. And it was... It was, it was really wonderful. I almost feel like this book is good for parents to read or anyone who works with young people to just kind of see how you can, how, again, how you said two things can be true at once and also how to talk and communicate in a way that makes a young person feel seen because very often they don't feel seen by the adults in their lives. How you can make them feel seen and also take it even a step further and get to know them even better.
0: Yeah, if I'm ever a parent, Matthew, as depicted in Anne of West Philly, might be my parenting goals because he's just so great in every moment of this book. Yes, agreed. I loved it. So over the course of Anne's journey in STEM, she also meets one Gilbert Blythe, who is based on Gilbert Blythe in the original book. And I loved the way that Gilbert Blythe is drawn. He just he looks like a little bit like Danny Zuko in Grease, like that kind of vibe. Like he has like flippy black hair and he's just like too cool for school. And everybody knew a Gilbert Blythe in high school. Like I certainly did as a girl who was really competitive academically and always wanted to be the smartest and the best. There were always boys in all of my classes. And I know that I'm being very reductive and being very binary in my language, but I'm just sharing my experience, which was that as a teenage girl in the aughts who was trying to make a mark academically, there was always a Gilbert Blythe over my shoulder, being like, oh, that's cute. Like, do you need me to do it for you? Or if we happened to be paired on a group project, that was the guy who was like, oh, like I'll take no- I'll take most of the work, but you can you can like participate a little bit if you want. And that's kind of how Gilbert and Anne form their relationship early on.
1: Yes. And he, I, I loved his character because he has also has a lot of layers. You know, there's parts where he's very annoying and, and very much what you said. And then there's parts where he's very sweet and thoughtful. And I'm just, I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do with you. But I am very curious in the original how this character is written and kind of how he comes across and how it compares with, with this one. I would be curious to read that.
0: I think it's pretty similar. He has a similar confidence, if I remember correctly, confidence that borders on arrogance. And I think I sensed their attraction to each other earlier on in that book, but they were also a bit older in the original. So in this book, they're in eighth grade. So I'm sure that there was some like age appropriateness factored into the way that they communicate with one another But I I do think they felt pretty similar. Gilbert in this book is not portrayed as being wildly wealthy, but he does have some financial security. He's smart. He seems generally well-liked. I think because the author of this graphic novel wasn't able to devote quite as much page space, of course, to Gilbert, like we don't necessarily get as clear of a picture of his reputation, whereas in the original book, like it's much more obvious that he is regarded in a certain manner in the community and that the girls are chatting about him and that kind of thing. So that's sort of the way that I remember it. And I'm sure that there are a lot of Anne of Green Gables diehards out there who will correct me or validate me. And I look forward to hearing from you.
1: Yes, I think that I think that if there was more space, like you said, to dedicate to him, his arc would have been a little bit clearer or his kind of his characterization Would have been a little clearer, but I did I did like how, you know, when they're when they're given assignments, he's like, Oh, I got this, you just watch me. And he's got his little eyebrow cocked up, you know. So he's one of those. Yeah. (laughs) But he has a redemptive he does have a redemptive arc. He really does. And that
0: redemptive arc follows the original book quite closely. So to sum up the redemptive arc. Anne and Gilbert are paired together for this robotics competition. Their new teacher encourages them to pursue this prize in the competition because the winning team, they will walk away with scholarships to this cool magnet high school with a big focus in STEM. And each participant on the team will get half of a scholarship. So they'll still be responsible for half of the tuition to this magnet school. And the Cuthberts are a little bit nervous when Anne expresses interest in participating in this contest because they're like, we are not going to be able to pay for half of this tuition. And even if she is granted a full scholarship, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're going to be able to support her in the other ways that she needs in order to go to this school. So maybe we shouldn't get her hopes up. But they ultimately decide to let her participate. And Gilbert and Anne have lots of banter back and forth while they make their project to enter into the contest. And spoiler alert, they win. And we see Gilbert acknowledging that he already can afford the full tuition to go to this school. And so he is able to pull some strings after talking to his mom to contribute his half of the scholarship to Anne so that she will then have theoretically 100% of the tuition that she needs to go start at this school. I have some questions about like, you know, the logistics of all of that, but of course that's not important in this graphic novel. I was like, hmm, would that actually be allowed? But yes, if I remember correctly in the original Anne book, Gilbert and Anne both get scholarships to go to a teaching college and Gilbert doesn't need the scholarship or he doesn't need whatever support has been granted to him and so he passes that on to Anne so that they can both go and get their degrees and sort of move forward in their career. So I I liked that. I thought that that was done really nicely. And um,
1: again, felt very fresh and of the time. Yes, I thought it was very sweet. And like you, I had logistic questions. But then I thought, you know what, this is a middle grade graphic novel. It's fine that that we don't have a full explanation. I was like, let it be Allie, let it go. (laughs) Yes, yes. Sometimes you just got to let it go and just say, okay, I'm accepting it. Yes, yes.
0: Another great moment between Anne and Gilbert is a little bit more superficial, but it happens after Anne has decided to give herself a haircut that goes horribly wrong. And it's really sad because whether it's a haircut or some really bold eyeshadow choice or something, all of us made choices as eighth graders that were ill-advised and we regretted them and we had to figure out how to undo them so that we didn't look completely horrible at school the next day. And so Marilla helps Anne transition her original haircut idea into something that actually looks good and it looks great like i was very into her haircut on the page and i loved the way that it was drawn in the graphic novel and gilbert's into it like we see his cheeks get all pink and it's really cute
1: yeah i love that part too with his his blushing that was really sweet
0: yeah so we've covered a lot of the big moments of the graphic novel. Are there any moments that you especially enjoyed or had thoughts on that I missed that we should chat about?
1: I feel like we hit the ones that that really resonated with me.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think we did too. I mean, I, I love this. Um, I want to read more graphic novels. I'm anxious to see what other classics are covered. Do you have a favorite classic or two, Erin, that you would like to see added to this graphic novel series for kids?
1: Oh boy, that's a great question. And you know, I'm thinking about the classics that I like to read, would not necessarily be appropriate graphic novels for kids. Like, (laughs) I love Wuthering Heights (laughs) and I love Jane Eyre. Not sure those would be great graphic novels for middle graders. So, I don't know. I'd have to think about that one. I do love Ferdinand. Mm. Do you remember Ferdinand, the bull, Mm -hmm. who likes to, I mean, it's already kind of a picture book, but. It's been made into a film. I mean, why not a graphic novel? Maybe someone can do something with that. Why not? Let us know. If anybody
0: out there listening wants to make it happen, I don't know. Maybe we can collaborate somehow. That sounds really cool. I used to love Ferdinand. One thing I do want to underscore before we start to wrap up our conversation of Anne of West Philly, and we touched on it very briefly at the beginning because Anne is is a child of color and Matthew and Marilla are also black, like this book is so wonderfully diverse diverse. Um, and there's so much representation in it. And that's all the more welcome because Anne of Green Gables of old was so whitewashed. So it's that much more important that we see this story that has been you know, beloved for so many decades. We see that representation brought to it. So um, I think that that is a goal of all of these retellings in the Little Brown series. I just wanna underscore how great it was to see that.
1: Yes. And you know what? That I just thought of a moment that we haven't covered that I want to just really point out yeah. quickly is when she first arrives at the townhouse, she finds a door and she says, where does this door lead? And Matthew said, oh, it just goes back to some alleyway. And sometimes people park their cars back there. And he kind of dismisses it as being just nothing. And she walks out and she sees in the alleyway all this beautiful graffiti and art. And she's very taken with it. And she talks about how she, she wants to spend all her days outside in this alleyway because of the art. And I really loved that because it shows how Anne's perception versus Matthew and Marilla's perception or an adult perception can be very different. And I also feel like it's a nice nod to... Because if there's one thing I will say about the sense of place in this, I feel like there could have been more West philly incorporated into it, but because... West Philly and Philadelphia in general is really known for its mural arts and its street art. I thought that was a really nice touch, you know, and I, I really loved that moment. We don't really revisit the alleyway again, but I thought it was a really special moment.
0: Yes. And, and as far as the depiction of Philly goes, like, I would like to see more soft pretzels, more cheesesteaks, more water ice. I guess we saw water ice briefly, but there are a lot of things that I think could have been added to create that sense of place. But yes, that was a really cool moment, and I'm glad you brought it up. On the whole, how did Anne of West Philly compare to the books that you read when you were
1: growing up? You know, I have to say, and we kind of touched on it, it's very different because I grew up in the 80s and outside of comics, which not many people I knew read, we didn't see graphic novels. I don't even know if people were using the word graphic novel in the 80s. but So it's very different in the sense that it's so visual and it's just a different mode of storytelling that I was not familiar with back in the 80s. So, and, and there's a lot of things in this book that I'm already too old to understand. You know, I already don't understand totally how coding works and how Anne does all the things that she does and all this coding language that they use. So I would say it's it's quite different, even though it's based on a classic. It's, it's different in, in many ways. What about you?
0: I think that I would have maybe been a little bit of a snob about graphic novels when I was a kid, which I'm ashamed to admit because having now come to them for the first time as a 32-year-old, I'm like, wow, this is a really cool format. And I was able to absorb so much of the story in a much shorter period of time, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I wish that I had access to more books like this when I was in middle school and that I was open to reading them. I also think that thankfully, we are seeing more representation on the page. And unfortunately, that was not something yes. that was true when I was growing up. So just to see that, and because it's graphic, again, like to actually see it, you know, not just in writing, but to see the representation that is on display here is great. So that is is a big difference as well. Other than Anne of West Philly, Erin, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: So right now, I'm actually in the middle of The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, Mm. which I know got a lot of love when it came out, so I'm a little late to the game. It's an incredible book. Her other book, The Mothers, was also incredible, and she she writes great short stories, so I definitely recommend that. And as we were talking about books that represent foster care life, I have to recommend Fighting Words by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley, and it's a middle-grade novel, traditional novel, and it's the story of a girl who is in foster care after an incident that's not really depicted at the beginning. It's kind of, it unfolds as the story goes on, but it is a very, very realistic, multi-layered portrayal of foster care life from the eyes of a, a girl in foster care. And even though it's geared toward Uh, middle grade readers. It's definitely a, a novel that can be appreciated by adults. And I think it's really interesting how the author handles very, very difficult adult situations on the page for young readers. So I definitely would have to recommend that one as well.
0: Thank you. I haven't heard of that one. So I will have to check it out. And I will make sure that listeners can access the information about both of those books in the show notes for this episode. You had a new book out just a couple of months ago, and you have many books out already. I don't know what else you're working on, but can you tell us anything about your new book and maybe things that you have kind of coming soon?
1: Absolutely. So my newest book is called Shirley, Shirley Marisol Rainey. So I have a collection of books for early elementary readers. So those of you with early elementary readers at home, pretty much grades K through five. And it's a series of stories about a girl named Marisol. And I will say, since we're talking about Anne, when I, was, when I was a young girl, I don't think I would have connected with Anne and maybe that's why I didn't read the books because I never connected with the precocious quote unquote spunky girl characters because that's not the kind of girl I was. I was very much a, a cautious, quiet, introspective girl who did not make a lot of noise, right? And my Marisol books are basically me at that age, me at age eight. So each book is Marisol overcoming something. So she's been described as a thoughtful warrior. So any of you um, who have a young thoughtful warrior in your life, I think that they will appreciate little Marisol. And I also illustrated them, which is really exciting. And so I have two Marisol Rainey books out right now. They're not in a series. You don't have to read them in order. They're just part of a collection. I have a third one. Coming out in the spring of 2023, and they're just about a very quiet, sweet um, half Filipino girl growing up in Louisiana, and her best friend Jada. They have a really sweet and tender relationship, which was something I also loved about Anne of West Philly. Is the relationship, the friendship between yeah. Anne and Diana, which was very, very sweet. Um, and we need positive female friendships, right, uh, depicted on the page for our young readers. So. That's what I have out now. And that's what I have going on in the future. And you can find out about all my books online on com, And that's where I am. Amazing. Well, it sounds like
0: everybody needs to get to know Marisol, all those warriors out there. And it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.